1: 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. Hi, I'm Bill, and each week on the Living Free show, we showcase one of the 12-step programs that assist recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. This week on Living Free, we'll focus on how Alcoholics Anonymous helps alcoholics and problem drinkers. Today, because of coronavirus restrictions, I'm interviewing from home via Zoom. So I'd like to welcome Joe to the show. Hi, Joe.
0: Hi, Bill. Lovely to be here. Thank you.
1: Uh, Joe's a recovering alcoholic with the help of Alcoholics Anonymous. So Joe, we usually start by talking about growing up and family life. So what was your early, what are your early memories of the family?
0: I remember my mother, uh, she struggled. Our dad left when I was about three. And I was told later on that he was an alcoholic. So mum struggled with three kids trying. She was on the pension, you know, getting money from the government. And she tried to work part-time raising three children. I was the youngest. There was an older sister and an older brother. It was pretty rough. There was a lot of fear. There was a lot of fear. My mother was very, very frightened. So I, I remember everything being pretty, pretty scary. Um, yeah, the three of us, the three kids didn't understand why we were going to school because we'd come home all the time and mum would be crying and because uh, she was so frightened. You know, the world just wasn't working right. So things were a little bit uh, uncomfortable, complicated.
1: So what was she frightened of? Was she anxious?
0: Anxiety. She, um, she probably, she was taking um, antidepressants. I think she was on antidepressants and Valium. I think she got addicted to some of those things that, that you know, I, I, I don't know her story because she would never really talk about it. All as I know is that she was able to feed us and clothe us, but she was scared of the world and of life, so she couldn't help us kids understand any of that either. So we basically had to work it all out ourselves. So, you know, we were very poor we were very poor. As some people who are a little bit older might remember the old kookaburra spaghetti and the yeah. bottles of tomato sauce. Well, that's about what all we could afford sometimes. We'd, um, I'd come home from school and mum would get us to go through the house and we'd find a couple of coins, find those coins, go over to the shop and buy a packet of kookaburra and a bottle of tomato sauce and that would be the dinner for the four of us.
1: Wow. Yeah. So how did you go to school?
0: Yeah, that was that was hard. Mum got us into she'd go to all the schools. She'd get them, She'd get us into school. Uh, they'd give it to us for free because we were a poor family. The, the Catholics, so uh, the Catholic schools. So Mum didn't have to pay any school fees because she couldn't afford it. So I already learnt. I, I've learnt through that to be very small. I had to be it was, you know, the gratitude of, of others, but not that I understood gratitude, if you know what I mean. So it was always like I had to look up at everybody else that I was getting handouts, basically handouts. I was getting secondhand clothes, secondhand uniforms. Yeah, it was it was tough. We all three of us rebelled at school because as I said, we didn't understand the world and life and we didn't understand why mum was crying all the time and angry and that she always had a headache because us kids gave her a headache. (laughs) (laughs) I actually remember we used to watch, some some of you might remember, um, the Daryl Summers show, Aussie, I can't remember, Saturday Night Live, Saturday Morning or something, I can't remember what it's called, and the Saturday show. And we'd be in the lounge room laughing our heads off, having fun as children do, and mum would come barging into the room, open the door and say, would you kids be quiet? You're giving me a headache. You know, I remember that distinctly. So the poor thing, she, she was in a lot of pain.
1: So what were friendships like at school?
0: I think, again, the three of us all struggled with that because we had no role, role models. Um, our mother, having no mother, father around, mum really didn't have friends. Um, I, I know I struggled. I know I struggled because you never came home from school and no one ever said to you, you know, how was your day? How She might have said, how was your day? But, you know, problems you might have with kids and stuff, we didn't talk about that because she didn't know how to do it either. No one had taught my mother. She had the same problem with her mother. We, we talked about that later when we all got older and more mature. We could discuss it. But it, so... We had no role models on how to do all that. So friendships, to give you an example, my sister did try to organise a little party for me, a surprise party, when I was about, probably about 10 or 12, don't directly remember, and only one girl turned up. Uh, that, yeah... <laughs> Yeah, I wish she'd never organised it because that was worse. Having one person turn up, I remember we were trying to play that chair thing that you do, musical chairs with two people. <laughs> it stayed in my mind. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think we all did all that well.
1: Did your mum's family have drug or alcohol problems?
0: Yes, my as I said, my dad. I found out later on was he actually died of alcoholism you know, from the liver, I think. Um, I never knew him, um, but he left when I was about three. And as I said, my (laughs) mum was on antidepressants and Valium and she was addicted to them. So um, later on in life, she did try to get off them. So um, my grandmother, oh, actually, sorry, backtrack just a little bit. The miracle when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, which we'll get to later on, but the miracle was that's when I found my family. And, yes, they all have problems with alcohol. I've met this whole big, because one woman, of course, I won't mention names, um, I met this girl and somehow she recognised me as in what I was talking about was so familiar and we looked like each other and we had a sat And I worked with a boy. I was working with a boy and we found out we were cousins, first cousins. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing, but it all happened thanks to Alcoholics Anonymous, the way it all opened up. And I found this incredible. Prior to that, we really had no family. We were very isolated.
1: Yeah, that's very common, isn't it?
0: Yes, yes.
1: Mm. So, did you bring kids home from school or were you too scared?
0: Yeah, you didn't want to bring them home because we didn't have much. You know, um, although we we probably, my brother was a musician. He got into drums at a very early age. So we had a lot of musicians coming around the house. So he, he had people because he was a musician. I did occasionally bring kids home, not a lot. I'm just trying to think. And I did go to some girlfriends' houses and did kind of learn that they were similar to us. There were a lot of single mums out there bringing up children they weren't as rich as as i thought everyone was so i got to know that you know we were pretty average if you know what i mean we weren't that unique
1: yeah it's it's interesting isn't it going to other people's places and realizing that um on the outside they look pretty pretty good but on the inside it's a bit of a mess yeah
0: absolutely absolutely
1: did your brother and sister introduce you to alcohol or what was the introduction to alcohol
0: yeah good question that's a really good question i haven't thought about it for a long time my brother didn't you'd think so with musicians and everything but he didn't it was actually my sister she was a couple of years older than me so at about the age of 14 or 15 she was 16 or 17 she was dating boys and i remember going out with her a couple of times and i remember the first time she brought me home drunk and you know, I just collapsed when Mum opened the front door, and Mum was just so angry that you know I probably only had one or two beers, but it knocked me out at you know the age of fourteen. I remember hating the taste of it, but it's what you did. It was kind of a social thing, even at school. It would, yeah. So with my sister taking taking me out with her her boyfriends and that, it was the it's the way you socialised. You didn't sit around having a cup of tea. You drank beer. And it was like the big adult thing too. I wanted to do it because I wanted to be I wanted to be one of the crowd, but I loathed the taste of it and I loathed the hangover feeling. It was horrible. But yeah, it was my sister who probably introduced me to it.
1: So did you did it do anything for you at the start?
0: No, absolutely no. It got me drunk and made me sick and I'd throw up and yeah. I loathed it. And after the age of 14 or 15, anywhere over that I really didn't drink a lot I got into when I got a little older I got you know 18 and 19 I got introduced to white wine and red wine and you know I was the uh, dinner party girl I'd have dinner parties and drink nice red wines and you know later on got into the scotches and you know I, I found things that I did appreciate I appreciated a lovely port with a short black coffee and all that sort of thing as I got a little bit mature but it, it really hadn't kicked in yet. There was no, you know, that allergy. And I swore I was never going to be like my father or my mother. You, you do that somewhere, not consciously, but somewhere inside you you think, you'll, you know, and I thought I was handling it fine. I was just being an adult. I got to those things.
1: So what happened when you left school?
0: Wow. I actually tried to commit suicide at the age of 15 because I realised that the home was very dysfunctional. My brother actually was diagnosed with schizophrenia or, you know, some personality problems. He was crazy in the house. I couldn't just go into the craziness. He actually was never diagnosed. He was diagnosed when I committed, tried to kill myself. When I got into the hospital, I read the paperwork Many, many years later, I had to go to the Alfred Hospital again, maybe 10, 15 years later. And they threw the chart on my bed. And while I was looking at it, I read back to the day I came in. I still had all that information. And the psychiatrist had charted my brother as a schizophrenic from everything I told her, whereas the family hadn't diagnosed it. No one, and they never told me when I did that. So my brother was quite sick. Um, mum wasn't well. My sister had gone to uni. And I didn't know how to get out of the house and I was only 15. So I tried to kill myself, but of of course that didn't work. So my sister came and got me because she was living at the university. So I went and lived at the uni for a little while, still finished high school, Uh, left home. This is where the miracle happened, I guess, whether you call it a miracle or not. But I was very blessed. I loved science. I really loved science and technology. And I got into the computer industry via the banks. There was a job and I was working shift work. And by working shift work, I didn't have to deal with life. I didn't have to deal with people. Uh, What what I loved was Star Trek, and my idol was Dr. Spock, Mr. Spock. You know, uh, sorry, Captain, that's illogical. Everything to me was illogical. Feelings were illogical. Problems were illogical because, quite honestly, I was quite idealistic, and people kind of used to knock me down for that. So, working shift work, I didn't have to have relationships because I didn't know how to have them anyway because uh, we ha- weren't having them in the family. So, I wasn't taught any of that. So, just working with computers, I was quite content. So, getting out of home, uh, as I said, I left home when I was 15 after the attempted at suicide.
1: Uh, clearly, you didn't have a lot of friends. Correct. So, when did your drinking start again? When did you turn to drinking?
0: Ah, right. So working in the computer industry, as I said, I was working like, you know, 3 o'clock in the afternoon till midnight, so I'd come home at midnight or midnight till 7 o'clock in the morning. The only friends I had were people that I worked with and that wasn't too intimate. So the drinking actually really kicked in Any about 10 years after I started in the computer industry. So, if, so I would have hit about... I remember distinctly I was about 27, 28. And I had a nervous breakdown doing the shift work. I remember waking up one morning and I couldn't... I went to work that night. Actually, no, I went to work that night and about an hour later I just looked at the boss and said, I have to go home. I couldn't deal with it anymore. Rang work, had a good chat with some of the managers. They offered me a job to work 9 to 5 and I'd never done 9 to 5. And I started the 9 to 5 and that's when the alcohol... And my story does include drugs. That's when drugs and alcohol kicked in because I couldn't do nine to five. I I go home, I joined the gyms and I played tennis and I played squash and I joined choirs. I was looking where to belong. I was trying to make friends, but everyone seemed happier than I was. That's when the drinking started to kick in. I needed a friend. And drink drinking and drugs became my best friend.
1: So how did your drinking start to affect your work?
0: This is a funny thing I heard when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous that I was a functional alcoholic, but I look back, I look back at it, and for a while there it wasn't too bad. It wasn't too bad, I guess. What it, And I suppose how it affected it for me, I would keep a job for only two years if I look at my resume. Luckily I was in the computer industry. In the computer industry it was okay to do that because you'd learn computers as you know, change so dramatically that uh, two years at a company, the next company would want you because you've got knowledge from the other company. You'd grow you'd be going up the ladder. I was always going up the ladder, you know. Uh, Anyway, but the other part of it, see, this is why it works so perfectly, leaving every two years was before, was it that thing where they're going to find out that you don't know anything, that you're a nobody, that you're really, the whole thing's a lie. Or also I took a lot of sickies and I would get out within two years before they fired me. Not realising in hindsight, and some companies even said it to me when I was leaving, you know, how good I was and good at what I did and I guess they were able to put up with the fact that as far as I'm concerned, in hindsight, towards the end, I only worked three or four days a week. I don't know how I ever got to work. I never. How would anyone do a full five days at a job? I I loathed it. I lost, absolutely lost. I don't know how I survived it. It's
1: funny looking back, isn't it?
0: (laughs) Isn't it? So I don't really agree that I was a functioning alcoholic because I don't think I was functioning too well. I mean, just for an example, I remember towards the end, towards the end I remember one day driving to work. I always tell this story. I was in a beautiful suit. I worked for very large corporations and I was quite high up. And I'm driving my car to work and I had a beautiful jacket on and I had drank that morning, you know, because, you know, it got that bad. It got that bad that I drank that morning. Driving the car along, I had to pull over, rip my jacket off, open it from the inside, throw up in the jacket, roll it up, throw it on the back seat and keep going to work. And that's insanity. I knew it was really starting to kick in that I had a problem.
1: Okay, well, listen, we might take a short break there. Australian music needs your help. Music festivals, concerts and local gigs have been cancelled due to coronavirus. Artists, crew and music workers have lost their jobs and don't know when their next gig will happen. We're all facing the sound of silence. But you can help. Visit thesoundofsilence.com.au now. Tune in to Uprise Radio every first and third Wednesday of the month at 5.30 p.m. on 3CR. With Jackson and James, we're bringing you the in-depth analysis of what's happening in the world, all in just 30 minutes. You can listen live to air, or you can find us on demand. 3cr.org.au. Stay tuned. Uh, This is the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you're interested in listening to one of our many podcasts, then either head to your preferred podcast platform or just Google 3CR Living Free. On our show's webpage, you'll also find details about Living Free Show and how to contact us. Today, I'm talking with Joe and we're talking about recovery from alcoholism with the help of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, So, Joe, we're talking about the progression of alcoholism and how it was sort of interfering with your life and work. So did your drinking affect your relationships at work?
0: Um, Yes, it did, of course, absolutely. I remember a lovely guy at work once ringing me up and asking me to come and join his friends for a, a pizza and video night, and I remember choosing the alcohol over going to his house because then they didn't drink like I, I drank I remember turning down so many um, you know friendships you know not allowing them I didn't want them to get close to me it, it I was frightened of, of, and he was a work colleague and um, I wouldn't I wouldn't socialize with people I'd keep my distance it was what I found and again it's always in hindsight it was like I was always wearing a mask I always had my guard up. I was always very protective. So it, um, you know, I'd go, if I did go out, I'd go to the pub with them, I'd have one beer and they would, they would think I was amazing, you know. But when I got home, I would have to drink. A lot of people don't,
1: don't understand that about alcoholics.
0: Yeah, we can be really pretend. There's a lot of pretending going on.
1: So did you feel that people knew or did you think you had it covered?
0: I pretty well did. I was because, again, it comes back to what I learned in AA, that um, alcohol was my medicine because during that period of time, I ran around to a lot of doctors trying to get help. I knew something was wrong with me, but I couldn't pinpoint the problem. I went to psychologists and psychiatrists. I went to a hospital once, I remember, and I went to emergency. And I said, I need to be locked up. Something's wrong with me. And they talked and talked. They probably got the psychiatrist and talked to me and they said, no, you're fine. There's nothing wrong with you. And I remember sitting in my car crying, thinking, I'm either going to have to murder somebody so they lock me up or I need to commit suicide. It was pretty messy. I finally did get into therapy, finally. I think it was around the age of about 30.
1: So were you living alone?
0: I was, yes. I did try to share houses with people. I did in the early days. After that, I got my own own apartments. I lived on my own. Then I could drink and drug as I chose. I didn't know how to get on with people. I didn't know how to have relationships.
1: So did you start using drugs as well?
0: That was the time when I, it mainly smoking dope, you know, and Valium, I did Valium. I didn't realise, again, it wasn't until I got into AA, that I actually saw all the, or uh, the cough medicine. There was a Sudafed, a tablet called Sudafed. I think it's still around today, but back in the old days, I think it had codeine in it or something. Oh, it yeah. was magic, absolutely <laughs> magic. Oh, I didn't know what I was doing every night. I used to have these colds. I had colds for 20 years on a two week basis. I always had these colds and sniffles. So I was always using Sudafeds and cold tablets. I, I used anything to not feel because they'd knock me out. They'd help me sleep. If it wasn't a drink, it would be a packet of that. But eventually somebody introduced me. I wasn't going to touch drugs. I swore off all that stuff, but it happened. And I remember, I remember the day, 1998, around 99, just before Christmas, I had that can of Foster's Lager in my hand. I was drinking the Foster's. Somebody handed me a joint. I, I took a toke on the joint. I sat there. And whoa, it was Christmas, all right. I was in heaven. The two of them just worked so well together. The peace that it brought me, the peace, the don't quieten the voices. The, the alcohol gave me the confidence to go out. People didn't know. I used to, I tried to join clubs and I'd drink nearly half a bottle of scotch before I went out the door to go to that club. And they used to say to me how incredibly confident I was. They didn't know the confidence came from the bottle. That was the only way that would get me in there. I would be so scared. Deep in the heart, I was, I was shaking in my boots, but I would walk in there with my shoulders back, my head up high, as if I owned the place. I would walk in because that was my protection.
1: So when did it start becoming a problem to you?
0: It, I said, even said to myself, whenever I had a drink, if I ever drank first thing in the morning, I would do something about it. And again, I remember the day I woke up at six o'clock in the morning and I had a drink, and I didn't do something about it. I was in therapy, and the therapist said I wasn't allowed to drink or drug. What good is that going to do? <laughs> Someone telling me I'm not allowed to drink or drug. Um, I used to go to her sessions occasionally, stoned. I'm pretty sure she knew, um, but anyway, that's whatever. It was hard dealing with feelings. But um, when did it really become a problem? um well as you can well as you can imagine through my life or just an example I did have a relationship with a boy and we were living together at one stage and he came home one day and I'd already found another place and I had my bags packed and I just looked at him and said I'm going because I didn't know that you had conversations I didn't know that you were supposed to sit down and talk about the problems I just knew I wasn't happy but I didn't know I taught that I was to tell him that so this went on all through my life. I remember a boy coming to my door one day. We dated once or something. And he came and he wanted to date me again. And, and I told him to F off because I didn't want him. And I didn't know to talk to him. I didn't know to invite him in and be polite. I had no idea how to do anything. And so by the time I got to about the age of, I think it was nearly 40, it was 40, it was, I'd gone through all this crap and I wasn't happy. Life meant nothing to me. Life was pointless. Life got to a point of just hopeless and pointless, and I was hanging with people who drank and drugged like me, and I knew I could do better than that, not being rude to them, because in hindsight now, I know they all had problems too, but we were all just existing. It was just existing, and there had to be somewhere in my heart I knew there had to be something more to life. There had to, there had to be something more to this thing called life, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. So when did you find somebody who could help you?
0: Very dear girlfriend that I drank and drugged with. I went to her house one day and she had a local community paper opened and it had a community announcement for Alcoholics Anonymous Actually, uh, actually, it was for Narcotics Anonymous, and I hope you don't mind if I mention a couple of other fellowships because I have been a part of it. It was for NA, and she mentioned AA, but she said, I think I need to go there. And I remember the moment. I remember my head saying, oh, well, that's for you, not for me. So that's when the seed was planted, that a 12-step fellowship, because prior to that I really knew nothing. I'd never known about it. Therapy wasn't helping me to put down the drink and the drugs. Helping in other areas, but not the drink and the drugs. I suppose therapy was helping me to get the willingness to see the problems that I was having, which was great. So she planted the seed. Then from there, I went to what was called Confest, a big festival they have up on the New South Wales border up there and somebody told me about Confess, Confess where all these hippies go and you do yoga and meditation, all this groovy, wonderful stuff. And I thought, I thought, I'll go to that. That was around Easter. It's always held around Easter. And I thought, I'll go there. And I went. And the funny thing happened, I didn't take any drugs or alcohol with me and I thought, you know, I'm going to go and meet the spiritual people because I knew that's kind of the direction I wanted to go. I had been searching for it all my life in other ways. Sort of privately, and um, I went up there. But the funny thing was, I was attracted to all the drugs and alcohol. You could either go left or right when you got to Confest. Either go left or right. Left, you're going to meet all the druggies and the alcoholics and the insane ones partying, or you go right and you've got all the spiritual, religious, meditators, whatever, and you could have a different experience. I went left, and the difference, I sort of knew something was wrong because. Somewhere in my brain I yeah. had been shown that you're always attracted to what's ever deep inside of you. You'll be attracted to. Whatever your problem is, you'll be attracted to it in some manner. I, I can't kind of articulate that. But something clicked in my brain that I've driven all this way to get, you know, I didn't know the terms back then, but to not drink and drug. I was going all this way to try and take care of myself, but yet I kept heading to the drugs and the alcohol, the drugs and the alcohol. Sitting by a campfire at this confest, I had so much drink and so much drug, it wasn't taking away the pain because up there there was just so so much alcohol and drugs you could take as much. And I remember stuffing cookies down my throat that had hashish cookies, eating all these cookies, smoking all this dope, drinking all these bottles of scotches and red wine and white wine and... A few other things. People were handing out all these other things. I was taking everything. But the pain did not stop. I'm, I was in this incredible agony that I could not explain to anybody. Couldn't articulate it. Couldn't explain it. Sitting at this campfire with a group of people, somebody was passing the wine around and a man sat there and he said, oh, no, that's not for me, thank you. I'm a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, the penny dropped. I remember... Jumping out of that seat, getting into my tent, uh, probably passing out, got up the next morning, packed my tent and my car, and it, I got back that night, called my girlfriend, and the next day I was at my first 12 step meeting I, he, The seat had been planted, he said something i just i wanted I wanted this 12 step program I needed nothing else had worked. I was at my wits end, nothing else had worked. It was taking my money, it was taking my life. I didn't lose cars or houses because I I bought cars, um, again, being a functional, what they call a functional alcoholic. But what I lost was who I was. I didn't know who I was. Didn't know where I belonged. I didn't know where I fitted in. I just felt I was at the end. I was at the jumping off point.
1: So was your girlfriend in AA at the time?
0: Um, no, and again, I, I hope it's all right to mention this. Um, she was visiting NA, so she took me to my first meeting was uh, Narcotics Anonymous. She took me to Narcotics Anonymous, and I went there for a little while, but uh, nothing wrong with NA. It just didn't work for me. It just and somebody came up to me and said, "Hey, Joe, maybe AA might be the place for you." And I distinctly remember the first night I walked into AA. It was a Sunday night Paran meeting. I hope it's all right to mention that. Um, It was a Sunday night Paran meeting. I walked in there and there was a man sharing and he told my story. He told my story from water to go and it resonated and I got it. And I remember really feeling at home. I found my tribe. That's where I belonged. I found my tribe and Uh, Bill, I I don't know if I've mentioned this, but, you know, I didn't get it the first time. I knew I was home, but I couldn't put down the drink. It took me three years. It was a hell of a journey. Uh, It's just a miracle that they just kept telling me to keep coming back, keep coming back, and I just did what they told me to do to keep coming back.
1: So in NA, did you feel that it helped you with your um, drug taking or not?
0: Yes, it did. Yes, it did. It, it Look, NA got me to AA. Yeah. And, you know, it doesn't matter which 12-step you get into, it doesn't matter what you do, it, it, all roads lead to China. Well, hopefully not during the COVID time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that was a joke. You know, I mean that totally with love. But I love that old phrase, all roads lead, you know, to the destination that you need to get to. So you've just got to take a different path. So I started with, um, with NA. But AA helped in nearly all my addictions, to be honest, together. You know, it just, everyone's different. You've got to find the right tribe that you fit into, I think, anyway. And, yeah, MA helped. You know, I love both of them. I love all of them.
1: Yeah. Well, it's a, they've all got a purpose and they all um, help people address the issues that they have. So, um, and they're all based on the same program, so...
0: Absolutely. Yeah. It's just who you can relate to, and the stories in A. I, I didn't get into cocaine or heroin, or I'm very blessed. I was very close to it. I probably got out just in time before it got even even worse. But um, so you know, it helped in other parts of, especially in, in the dope, because the dope is quite different to the alcohol. So big time. I got a great. I got educated in NA about. The drugs and, and my sleeping pills and the tablets and the, going to the doctors for the vellingham. I, I got a lot more clarity, uh, clarity all around that. So yes, indeed, it helped. But again, that path led me to the path where I belong.
1: Yep, okay. Awesome. Well, we might take another short break there. Uh, this year, Alcoholics Anonymous is celebrating 75 years in Australia. Due to coronavirus, their 2020 national convention will be a virtual experience held online From the 2nd to the 4th of October 2020. For more details about the event, just search AA National Convention. Come on, come in, and hear the best live pop music from around town. It's your chance to tune in, so come on, come in. Live on Thursdays, 3pm, 3CR, 8 55am. Uh, this is the Living Free Show on 3CR on digital radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. And I'm talking with Joe about recovering from alcoholism with the help of Alcoholics Anonymous. So, Joe, we finished off uh, the last uh, segment talking about you finding AA. So, what was it like coming into AA and finding your tribe?
0: Heaven absolute heaven the the first I remember sitting in that first meeting on that Sunday night seven o'clock at Paran and I remember people talking and the beautiful thing about it and I share this at every meeting what I love about AA, I love the laughter we laugh at all the yucky things that we did um that gave me forgiveness that gave me forgiveness. I didn't mention some of the yucky things I did. I, In the old days when you could write a cheque, I'd write all these cheques that would bounce. There was no money in them. I'd use false names. I lied to people. Like I said, how I treated the boyfriends. Um, I, yeah, I, treated a lot of, I treated a lot of jobs badly. A lot of big corporations gave me great jobs, but I just treated them, I wanted them for the pay, for the money. I was not committed. I was not committed at all. I didn't know how to be committed to anything. So I didn't know how much I loathed myself. I didn't know all of my drinking and drugging was because I hated myself. I didn't like who I was. And every time I did something bad, I had to drink or drug even more. I didn't understand that. I got to learn that when I got into AA and to see the people laughing, laughing at, you know, bouncing kicks doing all these terrible things that we did being able to laugh just go but there it gave me peace yeah. that i i was when i was a little girl i always felt that i was an a um i belonged with the aliens Or somebody had dropped me at the wrong planet uh, we had a toilet outside because you know we lived in very old houses we were very poor and i remember at night when i had to go to the toilet i go outside and i look at the stars and think please come and get me. I'm in the wrong place. I don't belong here. I don't fit in. When I went to that Sunday night meeting, I remember feeling I, I fitted in. I fitted somewhere. These were my people. I finally found them. Peace.
1: How did you cope with having to get honest? Because that's part of the part of the recovery is getting honest with yourself. So was that an easy thing to do to sort of face up to what you were and who you were?
0: Really, because as I said, I I came in, you know, 22, 23 years ago and um, it took three years at least for me to get it. So I would keep picking up. I would keep drinking, you know. I I would get three weeks up. I would get six months up. I got 18, I think the longest was 18 months and uh, I picked up a drink because I didn't know, still didn't know how to cope with it all. So that's getting honest. I kind of didn't mind. I mean, I had been in therapy, so I, I did know how to self-analyse. I, I, I was happy to, um, you know, to to strip it all down. But even then I didn't know what to do with it. You know, once you get it, it is painful. It can be. We know some of us doing the steps, it's, very, it's painful. It's painful when you've got to look at all the things that you've done. It, that's why you need your tribe. You need those people. They hold your hand. They hold you up. They love you. While you go through that process of peeling it all apart and finding the forgiveness, so getting honest for me, it's a hell of a journey. I'm still doing it today. The honesty is still today, no matter how long you're in a fellowship. Still, you're peeling away. Things will come up that are new. So, it, it for me, it took a while.
1: So, what about you know doing the steps? Did you find difficulty accepting? the fact that you were an alcoholic?
0: Yes, that's where the three years come in. I remember coming in. I understood the steps a little bit. And first step, I was powerless over alcohol. My life was unmanageable. I accepted that. Absolutely, totally. Um, I accept. I'm an alcoholic. Okay, great. I've got a label. I'm in a box. I know where I belong. I belong in AA. That's free, beautiful, everything. Sorry, not accepted it. I admitted it. Yeah. yes, I could admit it I could i'm an alcoholic put up my hand, got it great um but I couldn't accept it. The acceptance took a long time that's that's what took a while was there really kind to terms with letting go of control I did see if you would asked me I was a control freak, I would have said no. Not until I got sober but did I find out that I was such a control freak, still I am, and I'm very mindful've got to be very mindful of it because it becomes a habit everything is such to break all those habits that's what the twelve step part of the many things that twelve steps do is to break all that and it can take time can yeah take time.
1: I think it's yeah I think it's the um submission versus surrender it's um yeah you're quite happy to submit, but you're not happy to surrender. <laughs>
0: well put, well articulated, you're spot on.
1: Yeah. So what about the spiritual side of the program, step two and three? How did you, could you cope with that?
0: I could actually because I I think I vaguely uh, mentioned it a little bit earlier, but um, I was looking for spirituality all my life. I actually, during um, the working shift work and everything, I saved a lot of money and at the age of 21 I went overseas for a year. And, again, I was looking for where I belonged. I was still looking for my tribe. And one of those, I went to Israel, I was going to become a Jew because I thought the Jews had the answers. And they did because a little bit similar to AA because, see, the Jews, the Jewish religion, they debate the Torah. And that's what was logical to me, being analytical. They talked about it. You, you could talk about it. You don't debate the Bible. <laughs> you do what you're told. Now, that's what I would rebel against. So, so I was heading in the right direction because I just, I just wanted to be able I wanted to discuss. Instead of people just putting you in a box and telling you this is where you belong, I needed to talk. I, I was analytical. I wanted to find thinkers. Um, people with different views. And so I, I went off to be um, a Jew, but I kind of found out that they, they Judaism, you know, and I kind of found out that they had the same problems as us Christians. <laughs> they were kind of in the same boat. Lovely people. I love them today. Um, we're all just the same. And uh, I tried, I became a Mormon. I became a Latter-day Saint. Um, I became a born-again Christian. You know, I I searched and searched and searched for that spirituality. I couldn't find it. Yeah, it was it. So doing the 12 steps, getting into step two, came to believe in a power greater than myself. That was hard because it was all these gods, all these different gods. I, I thought there had to be, it had to be something to do with God and even with the word God. But that's what I love. Absolutely. And I just... Tell people about this. This is what I love about Alcoholics Anonymous. They don't do not tell you what to believe in. No one. When I, when everyone I told my thoughts, and I found out later that what I was thinking was on the lines of Buddhism. I didn't know it. I didn't know what box to put it in. I'd heard about Buddhism, but I, I didn't really understand it. When I talked, that's what it was. But that's fine. Nobody said. You better come, come to our religion or come to this church, okay? When I told people my thoughts on how the world works spiritually, people in AA would go, oh, gee, that's nice. Oh, lovely. Like, glad that works for you. And they left me alone. And I'm like, oh, my God, freedom. You know, no one, no one told me. People always used to say I was wrong. They'd say, well, oh, but you've got to believe in this or you've got to believe in that or come to our church. And I remember distinctly, again, you know, these pivotal points in your life. When I got into AA, when I was getting it, I was at work one day and I was talking to this young boy about my spirituality, my beliefs of how the universe works. And he looked at me and he said, "Um, oh, you should come to our church. I think you'd really love it. And I remember being able to look at him and say, no, thank you very much. I'm happy with what I've got. That was the first time I was able to say no, which gave me freedom and confidence and the ability to own my world, my part of the little world that I was in, you know, that's freedom, that's freedom to say, I've never been able to say no, I didn't know I was okay, you know, there's my spirituality, you know, just even being able to say no, (laughs) I can class that as spirituality, it's the freedom to know that Oh, sorry, let me backtrack. But, yes, it's knowing that um, there is a power greater than myself. And what AA did for me or my sponsor taught me that, you know, being being the moon, the stars, the sky, the trees, did I have power to stop the ocean? When my sponsor explained the universe and how it worked, I started to realise that I, I had no power. It gave me such a freedom and it did show me that there was a power greater than myself. I kind of got that. And I didn't have to call a God. It wasn't a man with a big beard and a white outfit and a big stick or something. And we weren't puppets. When when I studied Christianity, it was like we were not so much studied but was brought up in Christianity. I felt like a puppet. I didn't know where to move or how to move. And I, you fight it. You want to pull the strings off, you know, don't make me your puppet.
1: Yeah, it's, um, it's good having freedom of belief.
0: Yes, freedom of belief, Yes. Yeah.
1: so step four is about the way we think, so how did you approach that, and how did you how did you sort of reconcile that your thinking was your problem
0: yeah that that took a long time bill that 's a good really good question. Um, I remember and I share it with a lot of newcomers, probably nearly I, I did the steps within the first five years many times this this Many people in different ways have been taken through the steps, through the, the, the big book, of course, but there are, you know, you can do it quick ways, slow ways. Um, yeah. But the fourth step, I remember the first time I did it, I loved it because it showed me that I was the core of all my problems. I was the cause. Every time I wrote down, this corporation did this to me, the police did this to me, the hospitals did this to me, the family did this to me, it was always me. It was me, 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 me. It was freeing again. There's the freedom. It was freeing to know I can stop blaming. I can stop blaming the world. If it's me, then I was showing that... And, again, this is where the solution comes in with the big book and the 12 and 12. For me, they're the two major books. There's a freedom in that because I learnt that I can change me. I had to change my thinking. But what I did struggle with was the will, my will and God's will. You know, what is a one's will? And it took me a long time to realise it was just my thinking, my thinking. You know that that took nearly five years before that really clicked i am a slow learner in, in some areas <laughs> and that was fine and thank God I got there
1: <laughs> yeah yeah it's um sort of understanding that that my part in it I always had a part in in my problems, and that's bit about well, owning owning that bit um, what what did I do and you go, well you know, and a lot of times with the resentments and things. Had huge expectations of others. None Big of myself. Expectations. Yes. yes. Big expectations, yep. and and that always brought me into conflict with people. And um, yeah. Yes.
0: Exactly. <laughs> well put. Yes.
1: So, how did you go making friends in AA?
0: They were wonderful. I, I, as I said, I worked in the computer industry. So when I got into Alcoholics Anonymous, they got me into service. I was a pretty sick cookie, as we were talking about before. I wasn't making friends. I didn't have a big social circle. I wasn't very good at it. So, when they put me, they, they you know, when you come into our, any of the 12 step programs, they normally get you to do a bit of service and shaking hands, being a greeter. And I remember one at Paran was um, for the big conventions. They'd have the, and I can't think of the title for the person, but somebody to organise all the big rallies to get the money, you know, tickets to movies and all that sort of thing. And they, and they got me involved in that. And that would get me out of myself. And I was able to be real with people. And that helped me. That's how I just naturally started to make friends. It just happened naturally. Didn't have to think about it. Didn't have to do anything. But it was thanks to Alcoholics Anonymous for rewiring my brain and my actions. They helped me grow up. Grew up in Alcoholics Anonymous. So I got, I got to be a real person. And so I started making friends was easy, it was easy to make friends. I mean, we, I still had problems with friendships. We still had fights, even in Alcoholics Anonymous, but that's the beauty. You still get to sit beside each other, even in a room. You know, things happen. It, just so much forgiveness, you know, and respect and appreciation. I remember when I first heard somebody said, Did you, Joe, do you realize that other people think differently to you? <laughs> Have different morals, values, different, or, also. And I went, on, you know, I remember that blew me out of the water. I didn't know that other people thought, you know, that's why you fight. You know, you think everyone should think like you or be like you or like things like you or to learn that acceptance of other people. So uh, that's where I learned. I learnt how to make friends. Still didn't do it perfectly and don't always do it perfectly today. There's just so much still to know, you know, so much still to learn.
1: Yeah. So what about sponsorship? Was that good for you? Uh,
0: I, I wouldn't be here without sponsorship. It's such a gift. I've had a cu- I have had a couple of sponsors before I got the main one. As I said, I kept busting in the first three years. After the first three years, and it was around, it was obviously because I'm now nearly coming up to 19 years sober, but it was in 2000 and around 2001, She saw me through about a year of relapsing, uh, the primary sponsor. And um, she was my sponsor for 10 years. And she was just amazing. She was only three years sober. Uh, She was 15 years younger than I was. None of it mattered. None of it mattered. I actually, how I got her as my sponsor, a dear friend of mine, all my friends are from uh, the 12-step programs. I don't really have many outside. A dear friend of mine was we sitting at a women's meeting and uh, I was, you know, ready to drop the rock. You know, it was after about that three-year period and I was ready to drop the rock or something like that. I don't remember. It's a long time ago. But she looked over and she said, oh, don't get that woman as your sponsor. She's an AA Nazi. And referring to, you know, she really followed it by the book. Everything was by the book. Somewhere in my heart I knew that that's what I needed. I needed discipline. I needed somebody to tell me what to do and how to do it and when to do it. I needed somebody to tell me to shut up. And she was brilliant. Uh, She had me ring her every morning at 6 a.m. or 6.30 a.m. We only talked for 15 minutes. She'd give me 15 minutes of her time. She would tell me what to do, when to do, how to get to a meeting. She was just brilliant. As I said, she was my sponsor. She was my guide, my mentor, my sponsor for... For 10 years. 10 years after that, unfortunately, things just changed. I changed. I went down a different path. She went down a different path. Um, I've got a sponsor today. Uh, I've had several sponsors during now the last nine or 10 years. I've tried different things. Uh, You just grow. You just grow and change. That's my experience. Uh, But sponsorship is an absolute gift. An absolute gift and an honour to actually be able to do that myself. And give back yeah
1: so have you given back as a sponsor
0: absolutely i've, I've sponsored many a people haven't always done it perfectly you know because again it's another learning experience of how to do that i because my first sponsor was an aa nazi i did exactly the same thing i found later on for me that didn't work it, it didn't work that way I, I had a i needed a different approach and i needed to understand people differently each each of them are different sometimes um That's just me. That's just my approach. Uh, And I I just, I love sponsoring because it keeps, and as I tell everybody and I tell anyone I sponsor, it keeps me sane and sober. Keeps me sane and sober. I don't care how, you know, you can be five years down the line, you can be 30 years down the line. I can't do this alone. I can't do this thing alone. I've got to give it back. I've got to remember. I've got to remember what it was like.
1: If anybody's out there who'd like to find out more about Alcoholics Anonymous, then you can phone them on 1300 222, 222 or you can go online at aa.org.au for more information and details about local AA meetings. Uh, that's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Jo for sharing her recovery experience with us and talking about how AA has helped her. Thanks, Jo. Thank you.
0: Thank you for having me, Bill.
1: Uh, I hope you've had to join us again next week when we'll have a special guest is the CEO of Fearless, uh, Alex Garrick, and we'll be discussing post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, thanks for listening and stay tuned now for Alternative.